Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 89, St. Gregory II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So we've already met today's Pope, St. Gregory II. He was a Roman born, the son of Marcellus and Onesta, and he was apparently from a fairly well-to-do family. From an early age, he was basically raised in the service of the church, and we're going to see that more and more for the popes coming up. They lived at the Lateran Palace, they learned the administration of the See of Rome, they attended school there, and Pope Sergius I appointed him a subdeacon, and then put him in charge of the sacristy at St. John Lateran, as well as the papal library. St. Gregory was ordained a deacon, and as we heard last week, he traveled with Pope Constantine to Constantinople to assist with the negotiations with the Byzantine Emperor. And there he actively engaged in diplomacy, both with his counterparts in the imperial administration, as well as with the Emperor himself. So in April of 715, Pope Constantine died, and Gregory II was elected the Pope. And he was consecrated on May 19, 715. And one of the first series of events that we hear about from Gregory's pontificate revolve around the Germans. In 719, a British monk named Winifrith came to Rome to ask permission from the Pope to go and evangelize the German people. Winifrith had come from the British Isles to the Netherlands, where he eventually met St. Wildeboard. We met him a couple of episodes ago. And then he eventually made his way to Rome. And Gregory agreed with his plan and commissioned Winifrith to go and preach the pagan people. And he decided to give him a new Roman name, which is unfortunate because Winifrith is such a cool-sounding name. But the new Roman name is good. He called him Boniface. And so St. Boniface, as he's later going to become, goes to Germany. And it was in this trip to Germany where the great saints famously cut down the pagan Donar's Oak, proving that the pagan gods were no gods at all. Boniface later returned to Rome in 722, where Gregory consecrated him as Bishop of Germany, and then sent him back to Germany with letters requesting help from the neighboring Christian kingdoms. And in particular, a letter was sent to Charles Martel, who was a Frankish official, but who was basically the king of all the Franks in name, in all but name. He was called the mayor of the palace, but he was basically running the show. And he protected Boniface and supported his mission in Germany, and he eventually helped him to establish several dioceses in Bavaria. Now, we're going to hear more about Charles Martel, and in particular, his family, as we go forward. Uh, This is really, really an important group of people. While things were looking up for the church in northern Europe, in Italy, things were getting a little bit more complicated. The Byzantine emperor was dealing with further encroachments from Islamic armies of the Umayyad Caliphate. And when we last heard from them, we talked about the first siege of Constantinople, which ended when the emperor Constantine the fourth used Greek fire to destroy the Arab navy and to drive away their forces. But with all the chaos in the Byzantine Empire over the last couple episodes, the Umayyad forces thought their time had come for a second shot at conquering the Byzantines. And so they found an ambitious Byzantine general, a guy named Leo the Historian, and they decided to kind of work with him against the Byzantine Emperor, hoping to exploit the continued political instability and then to have one of their own guys on the throne. But once Leo entered entered Constantinople and deposed the emperor, he then turned his back on the Umayyads, and he ruled as the emperor Leo III. And the Umayyads almost immediately besieged the city after that in 717. So while this is all going on in the east, in Italy, the Lombards thought this is a great time to take advantage of the Byzantines fighting with someone else, and 
other problems in the Byzantine Empire. And, you know, maybe we can take a little bit more territory. So Lombard troops captured several Roman towns that fell under the jurisdiction of the Pope because they figured no one's going to stop us. Pope Gregory initially tried to buy them back from the Lombards. This was a tactic that popes had used in the past. But eventually, he had to get the help of local Byzantine officials. Now, in the meantime, Leo III had driven back the Umayyad armies again. And like many victorious Byzantine emperors, and we've met a couple now uh, so far, he decided, it's time, let's get this empire reorganized. And that always includes religion. So first he tried to exert a little extra control over Italy, which had been slipping away from the Byzantine sphere of influence. And he imposed heavy taxes on Italy, which resulted in Gregory II protesting and the entire Italian peninsula refusing to pay. Now Leo, of course, was furious, and his officials in Italy were furious too, and they ganged up and plied to kill the Pope. But their conspiracy was discovered, and it was thwarted, and the two leading conspirators, prominent Roman nobles, were then murdered. The Byzantine exarch then decided to send an army to Rome to remove the Pope altogether. But the Italians, aided by the Lombards in the area, refused to accept this result and repulsed the army and agreed to help protect the Pope's autonomy. So now the Byzantine emperor has failed twice in controlling Italy more strongly and getting the Pope to do what he wanted him to do. And so the third time is going to be the toughest. In 726, the Byzantine Emperor Leo III instituted a new religious policy, and that policy was called iconoclasm. Now, you've heard of an icon before. An icon is an image of a saint or of Jesus. Oftentimes, you'll see them painted with beautiful gold leaf and a red border, and then the pictures of the saints are, are a little disfigured, or, or not disfigured, but the, not as realistic as other paintings you've seen of saints. And they play a big role in the Christianity of the East. And iconoclasm is the religious belief that any image of God or Jesus or the saints is inherently idolatry. Apparently, this had been tending this way a little bit. You know, people were taking these images of the saints to be more than just an image that helped you connect to the saint, but rather something magical. And with the Islamic influence on the area, I this iconoclasm started coming about because Islam inherently rejects any images of God and or the prophet Muhammad. Now, it's unclear what prompted this course of action by the emperor Leo III. Some suggest that it was the loss of life caused by a volcanic eruption in the Aegean Sea, and that made them think that God was angry at them for their images, or that there was a the military successes of the Islamic armies was because they didn't have images of God, and neither should we. Um, but whatever it was, Leo was convinced that God was angry at them for using images. And so in 726, Leo removed several important icons in Constantinople. And eventually, in 730, he ordered the complete institution of iconoclasm throughout the empire. This is a big deal. In the past, some icons had been used and carried around cities to help defend them, to call the saints to protect the city. And now these huge cultural institutions and fundamental parts of the practice of religion of everyone in the empire, now they're all being thrown out the window. Leo III wrote to Pope Gregory around 728 or 729, instructing him, okay, this is the policy of the empire, you're in the empire, you've got to take up iconoclasm. And he promised that if he did so, he would forget the whole tax thing and he wouldn't depose him. Gregory, of course, rejected the offer. He said that iconoclasm was heresy. God became man. He took on human flesh in Jesus Christ.
he in a sense made a picture of himself. He made himself an icon. So it's not idolatry to have a picture of him. Pope Gregory wrote in a letter, which now we're not quite sure came from Pope Gregory, but it expresses the, the arguments from the anti-iconoclastic side. But you say that we worship stones and walls and boards. It is not as you say, O Emperor, but we have these things for our admonition and excitation, and that our dull, untaught, and gross mind may be raised on high by those whose names, whose appellation, whose image we see written thereupon. For we have them not as gods, God forbid, and our hopes are by no means placed in them. Now the response to this crisis was revolt and confusion in Italy. Several provinces revolted from imperial authority over the whole iconoclasm issue. This is how ingrained this was in the religious practice of the people. Some even went so far as to try and get a new emperor and march with an army on Constantinople, but Pope Gregory II quashed this plan. He still respected the civil authority of the emperor, even if he didn't approve of his religious plans. But the emperor was definitely not going to let this insurgency go on, so he sent a new exarch to Italy, a man named Eutyches. And Eutyches first tried to find some accomplices in Rome to depose the pope, but everyone there was pretty loyal and wasn't going for his plans. So then he talked to the Lombard king, whose name was Liputrand. I hope I pronounced that right. Liputrand. Now, besides having such a weird name that I had to use it, the Lombards are going to become increasingly important as our story goes forward. So I want to pause and do a little refresher on the Lombards in case you forgot who they were, were and what was going on. As the Roman Empire declined, the Lombards, a German tribe, moved in. And so in 568, if you remember, the entire tribe, men, women, and children, crossed the Alps and invaded northern Italy. And they swept all before them. And for decades, papal policy was just to buy them off or try to get the Byzantines to fight them off. But the Lombards were not a monolithic entity. They were divided into 36 small duchies across northern Italy, nominally led by the king. By this point, some of the duchies had basically become independent kin kingdoms, thanks to the rule of weaker kings in the past. Leputrand represents a turning point. He's basically trying to consolidate his power in the north, and he eventually wants to unite all the Lombard duchies under one strong central rule. And the key ones for that are the duchies of Spoleto and Beneventum, which are just south of Rome. Now, with that goal in mind, he turned for help to the Byzantine exarch. Eutyches said to him, we'll help you get control in exchange for help with Gregory II. And eventually, a, a Lombard army ended up camped outside of Rome. But Gregory seems to have been able to turn the Lombards back against the Byzantines. And then an agreement seems to have been reached in which Gregory reasserts his civil loyalty to Constantinople while disagreeing with iconoclasm. Now, In the meantime, iconoclasm was still heating up, with Leo III deposing the patriarch of Constantinople, whose name was Germanos, for not agreeing with iconoclasm and replacing him with an iconoclastic bishop in January of 730. Gregory strongly rejected this move and he protested against Leo's activities, but before iconoclasm could be finally resolved, St. Gregory II died in February of 731. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and he was succeeded by another Gregory, St. Gregory III. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com. You can find us there or find us on iTunes. Thank you, and God bless you.